Coming up this evening on NTD Business. The U.S. and the EU strike a new gas deal. The U.S. will send more liquefied natural gas to Europe to help wean them off Russian energy. Investors are reportedly pulling money out of China at an unprecedented rate. Why now? A U.S. lawmaker asking financial trade groups for details on Russia exits and says pressure increases for companies to cut ties with Moscow. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. Germany is assessing Russia's demand to be paid in Russian rubles for its oil and gas. Russia wants to prop up its shaky currency. But Europe will be reluctant to help as it tries to limit Russia's ability to finance its Ukraine invasion. But the German chancellor today didn't rule out the possibility they may have to entertain Russia, given Europe's dependence on Russian energy. But the chancellor seemed hopeful the existing contracts would allow them to pay in euro or dollars instead of rubles. We're trying to get an overview. From what we know so far, there are contracts in which the currency is part of the contract. So that's what will apply. Russia says it doesn't trust the euro or dollar anymore after the West froze its foreign reserves. The ruble has fallen sharply against both currencies since the invasion. If Russia could force what it calls unfriendly countries like the U.S. and Europe to pay in rubles, that would help its economy. But it could also ruffle feathers. 80% of global oil sales are priced in U.S. dollars, the so-called petrodollar. This dollar dominance helps finance the U.S. government's big budget deficits. But will Europe be able to avoid meeting Russia's demands in the short run? It's highly dependent on Russian energy. 40% of its natural gas comes from Russia. It is reducing that dependence, but says that'll take time. One way it could reduce the reliance is by buying gas from the United States. The U.S. has just agreed to give Europe far more natural gas than it does right now. President Biden even flew over to Belgium to talk about it with the president of the European Commission. Anthony's fake quarter has more. The U.S. commitment to provide the European Union with additional at least 15 billion cubic meters of LNG this year is a big step. The U.S. and the EU have formed the Task Force for Energy Security. America will supply Europe with 15 billion cubic meters more liquefied natural gas, or LNG, than last year's 22 billion, and 50 billion more each year until at least 2030. 50 BCM per year is replacing one-third already of the Russian gas going to Europe today, so we are right in on track. Liquefied natural gas is basically natural gas that has been cooled into a liquid form so that it can be shipped and stored. Larry Behrens is the communications director at Power the Future. Behrens says natural gas has two purposes. One is heat, where it is a direct natural gas pipeline in a gas form to heat into homes and that is burned in furnaces and that goes into you know blowing warm air into homes and keeping them warm during the winter the second part is they will go to large facilities that are used for electricity generation the u.s is the world's top exporter of lng after production exploded during the shale boom but if we're going to export more then you have to have 
more pipelines, more LNG facilities to make that happen. Brett Bennett is the policy director for Life Powered at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Bennett believes Europe will remain very dependent on imports. The one thing they haven't done is, and they aren't doing, is increasing their own domestic production. Um, there's, there's shale gas in Europe. And the environmental groups in Europe have such a hold over them that they won't produce their own energy resources. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's insane. Europe has a lot of untapped shale, a type of rock that natural gas comes from. Bennett says there could also be a lot of undiscovered shale that Europe is sitting on. Faye Quarter, NTD News. So as the U.S. and Europe work to support each other during the global fallout, China isn't joining the party. Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a, quote, no-limit friendship last month. That raised concerns about China and Russia working together to counter the West. But now Beijing's ambassador to the U.S., Qin Gang, says there is a caveat to that no-limit friendship. It's the first time a Chinese official has clarified the statement. Qin told Chinese state media China and Russia's cooperation has no forbidden areas, but it does have a bottom line. The principles of the U.N. Charter and, quote, the recognized basic norms of international law and international relations. Beijing is facing more pressure to distance itself from Moscow. NATO leaders yesterday called on the Chinese regime to halt its support of Russia during the war. So amid China's response to Russia's invasion and a volatile virus situation there, are Western investors starting to rethink investing in China? New report shows capital flowing out of the country at a rapid pace. Anthony's Don Ma has the story. Investors have been pulling money out of China on a large scale since Russia attacked Ukraine. This suggests investors may be seeing China in a new light after how Beijing responded to the invasion. But a new IIF report also says it's premature to draw any definitive conclusions. Political scientist and economic analyst Ethan Yang says the outflow is due to a number of factors, including China's response to the Russian invasion. Investors don't like it when the regulatory environment uh, continues to change at a moment's notice. And there's been a lot more uh, crackdowns on capital, um, crackdowns on the stock market, crackdown on large companies, right? So investors are starting to realize that the Chinese government that was very friendly towards companies, very easygoing when it comes to allowing investment in the past, is no longer doing that. And not only are they not doing that, but now they're supporting countries like Russia, for example, in Ukraine. Other than capital outflow, businesses could be leaving too. A new survey by the European Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong found that, due to the city's current virus restrictions, 50% of the city's businesses are thinking about relocating in the next year either partially or completely. It used to be this massive um, like GDP producer, and now it's more just a small component of the Chinese economy. Um, they're going to have to probably transition to something else besides global finance, or it'll just be a shell of itself, which, again, would be extremely sad. What about American businesses in mainland China? 75% say they will not increase investment in China. This is according to a recent survey by the American Chamber of Commerce in China. In Xinjiang, there's uh, allegations of slave labor, and so the U.S. has proceeded to ban cotton from Xinjiang, right? So you don't want to be a, a clothing manufacturer uh, with imports coming from Xinjiang. Uh, so basically, almost any investment you make in China could be subject to some sort of sanctions, some sort of restrictions someday, right? So that's kind of like the, the anxiety that comes out of this geopolitical tension. 
The survey found that more than 50% of businesses say U.S.-China tensions is the biggest obstacle to their business. Don Ma, NTD News. A new IMF report says the dollar has lost its share as a global reserve currency. It says this is the result of central banks around the world diversifying their holdings, including into Chinese yuan and other currencies in smaller countries. China is reportedly talking to Saudi Arabia about buying oil with Chinese yuan to sidestep the dollar. Meanwhile, the U.S. freeze on Russia's dollar reserves might have shaken other countries' confidence of the dollar. So joining us to discuss, perhaps debate, the dollar's dominance is Gal Luft, the author of De-Dollarization, and Tracy Shukart, a partner at Intelligence Quarterly. Welcome to both of you guys. Thanks so much for coming on. Tracy, is the dollar's dominance under threat? I, I mean, if we look at global FX reserves held by the central banks, right, the United States share of that's 59.1%. You've got the euro at about 20.48%. You have the yen at 5.83% and uh, the yuan at 2.66%. So, I mean, if you look at that, how dominant the U.S. is, I mean, there's just no other currency in the world that can compete with the U.S. dollar right now. Gal, what do you think? I agree uh, that uh, the dollar is now the most dominant currency, uh, but it's like asking... Uh, uh, a 50 or 60 year old man, uh, you know, about how uh, uh, fit or how healthy he is. You know, yes, you are now uh, very strong, but you're making a lot of mistakes that make, may make you uh, much, much weaker down the road. And I think this is what's happening now. Um, uh, the reason that the dollar will uh, lose a lot of its, um, uh, its share, uh, the way it is portrayed today, and it's true, uh, is because uh, the world is losing trust, um, increasingly losing trust in uh, the United States as the custodian of what is known as reserve currency. And more and more countries are losing this trust. And at the same time, the U.S. government it needs more and more uh, to accumulate more and more debt. So if you want to convince the rest of the world to buy your debt at, at, a, at a rate of uh, one trillion dollars a year in terms of the deficit, uh, you cannot uh, upset the very same people that you rely on to sustain your, your financial system. What do you think, Tracy? Has all this money printing put the U.S. in a tight spot? Well, obviously, it hasn't helped, but every other central bank is doing the exact same thing. So if, you know, you can't have, um, you know, what are you going to look at Europe? Europe's printing like crazy. PBOC is printing like crazy. Um, so it's every, this is a global central bank problem that, that we're having. So it's not a problem that's unique to the United States at this point. What is the alternative, Gal? I don't think we need to think about this issue in terms of one reserve currency replacing another. It's not like one king dies and another guy comes and replaces. I don't think this is the case here. I think we are looking more at a, a scenario of a, a unipolar uh, system being replaced by a multipolar system in which uh, several uh, currencies are capturing larger and larger share. By the way, not only fiat currencies, I could also see 
uh, other currencies, other uh, cryptocurrencies, etc., that are gaining more and more um, uh, of market share, if you want. Um, so it's going to be a very uh, more diversified system in which uh, a lot of folks will be playing against each other. And, uh, and central bankers are very cautious people, you know, they, they don't like risk, so they will be increasingly diversifying their portfolios, and uh, it'll be a much more balanced system than it is today. But I think for the United States, uh, it will pose a big problem, because as I said, when you run one or two or three trillion dollar deficit, um, somebody needs to foot the bill. Is this something that the U.S. needs to face, Tracy? Well, I mean, obviously, um, you know, central banks are already talking about that. They already know, I mean, they are behind the curve, um, but they already know that they're going to have to start run off their balance sheets, right? And that we've seen a complete 180, especially from, you know, very dovish people like, um, very dovish central bankers have all kind of switched over. And now, um, you know, they're, looking to be very aggressive at raising rates and running off the balance sheet. Let's see if that happens. Um, you know, I can say a lot, but um, but we have seen kind of a shift there, which is good to see. Let's just see if it can be actually executed without killing the market. Gal, what would it take for you to change your position on this? To change my position? Mm -hmm. Uh, my position is that um, we have to be much more uh, respectful. When you talk about a rules-based international order, and we are breaking every rule every day, almost on a day, in the past month alone, look how many taboos have been broken. What are some and, examples, uh, Gal? Pardon? What are some examples of breaking the rules? Well, when you see central bank reserves, when you freeze them, when you... Uh, um, you know, you disconnect um, a country like Russia from uh, SWIFT systems and so forth. You know, th these are things that were never done before. Uh, when you sanction so many, one, one out of 10 countries in the world today is under some form of U.S. sanctions. Uh, and now they want to start the whole thing also with China. So when, you, when so many countries are under sanctions, uh, and we're talking about sanctioning uh, uh, more and more countries every day, then uh, countries pay attention. And let's not forget that, um, you know, not everybody is on board and not everybody upholds the, the system that the United States is trying to enforce. And uh, people are taking note. Do you agree, Tracy, that this is a unique and unprecedented situation for the U.S. dollar? Oh, I definitely agree with that. We have never seen um, sanctions like this before. Um, you know, I, I mean, Russia... Um, you know, stores reserves at the at the Federal Reserve. Um, never before did they did anybody ever get cut off from their reserves. So, granted, this is a completely unique situation, um, and I do think there'll be some. They're going to have to find a way to diversify, certainly. But you know, I don't. It, you know, I don't foresee the ruble or the you know or the yuan by any means taking over um, as a global reserve currency. Very good. Tracy Shukart, Gal Luft, really appreciate it. Thank you. Maxine Waters, the chair of the House Financial Services Committee, wants to know how American businesses are distancing themselves from Russia. 
She sent a letter Thursday to over 30 financial trade groups, including the American Bankers Association, the Bank Policy Institute, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, asking which firms are still doing business there. She wants to know why they're still there, how they're complying with the sanctions, and she wants this information in at least 20 days. Financial firms have taken a variety of approaches, some leaving, some staying, some partially staying. And although surely well-intentioned, Waters' letter raises, raises questions about government overreach and its right to coerce or shape the decisions of private businesses. Similar concerns were raised earlier this week after the Security and Exchange Commission announced plans to have publicly listed companies declare their greenhouse gas emissions. It's seen as burdensome and invasive for businesses. But at least one person thinks the world's biggest investment fund will welcome the idea. Joining us is Will Hill. He's the Executive Director of Consumers Research. Will, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Why do you say BlackRock wants more SEC regulation? Absolutely. Well, Larry Fink and BlackRock, uh, their real business model is to inject their personal politics into corporate America. They use the $10 trillion that they have in assets under management. That's not their money. That's American investment dollars to bully U.S. corporations uh, across the board to basically adhere to Larry Fink's personal politics. He even has the hubris to issue an annual letter to CEOs that details his political uh, personal priorities for the year that he would like them to adhere to. And so they will welcome this opportunity for the SEC to basically force companies to give Larry Fink a report card on how well they're doing uh, adhering to what, what he would like to see. How exactly does this most recent proposal tie into this? Certainly. Well, what's being proposed by the SEC is that companies would have to do what they call scope one, two, and three disclosures. This is everything from the amount of uh, CO2 emissions that come out of the, you know, uh, uh, hypothetical factory, you know, a smokestack to even how much uh, emissions are going to come out of the use of the product. So if you sell lawnmowers, you have to think, okay, well, how many times is a consumer going to fill it up and, and then, you know, mow their lawn? It's a ridiculous and absurd proposal. It's going to cost uh, American corporations uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, for each company to to adhere to this. And you know, if you're Google or Facebook, this is no big deal to you. But think of all the small cap companies whose profits may only be you know five, ten million dollars a year. Uh, does this really something that the SEC uh, ought to be forcing on them as far as compliance costs? Is that really what retail investors want to see? That, that the returns of the, from their investments going down because they have to adhere to these ridiculous disclosure requirements? So you're saying BlackRock will benefit because it can absorb these costs, whether it's whether, whereas its smaller competitors won't be able to. Well, not only that, but because their uh, aims are so political and, and not really aimed at the fiduciary duty that they have to their clients to, to maximize returns, they're going to be happy to see American companies forced to basically report to, to BlackRock how well they're doing in, in adhering to Larry Fink's personal politics. Whereas retail investors, people that actually are investing their own money for themselves and want a maximized return, are going to be hurt by this because these companies, you know, small caps and mid caps that, that, that have to adhere to this, uh, they're going to have to pay money. It's going to take their eye off of, off of focusing on maximizing returns and, and uh, focusing on, their, uh, on pleasing their customers and onto these ridiculous uh, SEC requirements and, and uh, you know, what Larry, whatever Larry Fink wants to, to see from them next. Your organization looks out for consumers. How do these new proposals potentially affect consumers? 
Absolutely. Well, imagine you're a retail investor and you invest in large cap companies, mid cap companies and small cap companies. Well, uh, many of these companies, like I said, their profits may only total in five to 10 million per year. It's been suggested even in the SEC's own proposal for this rule. This is probably going to cost companies somewhere between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollars in compliance costs per year. So imagine you're invested in a company. You're, you care about the returns. You care about making sure you don't have to eat cat food in retirement. And instead of helping you, the SEC is out there trying to force these companies to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, large portions of their profits, potentially, uh, handing Larry Fink a report card on how well these companies are doing, uh, adhering to his personal politics. And so it's a betrayal of the retail investor. It's a betrayal of the SEC's uh, authorization statutorily to, to serve the investor. In fact, instead, they're in, uh, serving the, the whims of companies like BlackRock, massive investment firms, who have decided to politicize corporate America rather than to fulfill their fiduciary duty. Will Hild, Consumers Research. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. On Wall Street today, markets were a little mixed. Financial shares rose after the benchmark Treasury yield jumped to its highest in nearly three years. The Dow rose 153 points, four-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 gained 23 points, but half a percent. The Nasdaq today lost 23 points, two and two-tenths of a percent. For the week, S&P 500, Nasdaq registered gains. The Dow was close to flat. And also today, President Biden warning about potential food shortages around the world due mainly to Russia-Ukraine war. Denise Filzo has the story. President Biden said he and world leaders talked about potential food shortages while at the NATO meeting in Belgium. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did re re talk about food shortages. And, uh, and it's going to be real. The, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well. Together, Russia and Ukraine make up 25 percent of global wheat exports. I haven't thought about it. I guess I'll, I don't know, I'll eat dog food. Now my dog doesn't eat dog food. She eats people food. Biden says the U.S. and Canada will plan to produce more wheat to counter the shortage. But U.S. food prices are soaring because of inflation, hitting nearly 8 percent last month compared to one year ago. I mean, if it goes a lot higher, I would be affected by it. But right now, there's nothing I have to do to, you know, cut back or anything like that. New Yorker Matthew Marshall told me he's not worried about a shortage in the U.S. I'm a little more concerned about how it's going to affect other parts of the world that aren't as privileged as we are in the United States. So that concerns me. Earlier this week, the White House said because of higher food prices, countries in the Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia may experience food shortages. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. And still to come, stay with us. A preview of what's to eat after the Oscars Sunday. It's quite the spread. An Argentine app maker develops a platform that allows people to keep a part of themselves alive for family and loved ones, even from the afterlife. That and more coming up on NTD Business.
Welcome back. We got a glimpse into the official Oscars after-party food spread. The Oscars are on Sunday at the Dolby Theatre. The nominees, presenters, performers and attendees are invited to enjoy the Governor's Ball afterward. It'll feature 40 or so dishes. Wolfgang Puck is once again whipping up the eats. They include dry-aged Wagyu beef sliders, Maine lobster pot pie and macaroni and cheese. New York-based Ghetto Castro, a culinary collective, is new this year. His offerings include ancestral roots fried chicken and waffles, cornbread, crab and caviar, and crispy coconut rice with peas and sweet plantain. For dessert, chocolate sea salt Oscar eclairs, grapefruit panna cotta, and s'mores macaroons. And an Argentine app maker has found inspiration from the Disney Pixar film Coco and the Jedi Force in Star Wars to develop a new platform. It allows people to keep a part of themselves alive for family and loved ones, even from the afterlife. Anthony's Andrew Thomas has more. The Almaya app lets people store important memories and messages for others to access after their death, like a recording of a lullaby, a birthday greeting for a future celebration, or a cooking recipe to pass down the generations. My vision, and what I would love, is that all the families in the world will put together a family treasure that will be passed from generation to generation. The treasure contains the wisdom of the members of the family, elements unique to the family, from its history to cultural qualities such as songs, food, recipes, and memorable quotes. The app's creator, Martin Kogan, was inspired by the silver screen. He cites the adventures to find family in the land of the dead in Coco, as well as Obi-Wan Kenobi's ability to appear in ghost-like form to counsel Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Our idea is for people to start filming themselves and share it with their families. It's something new, but an old custom. The new thing is the use of technology. But in human history, we have thousands of examples in which characters in history want to pass on things or cultures beyond their own lives. The app was started in January, but it hasn't been commercially launched yet. It lets people schedule the sending of a video or audio at a specific future time, such as a birthday or the wedding day of a child. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. That's the latest of the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney. Cancel catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. For NTD Business, that's all for this week. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.